At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Welcome to this episode of Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Shannon Lackey, your host for today. In this episode, I am joined by Sean Doyle of General Counsel at MCNC. We discuss happiness and lawyering, where we talk about the problems with depression in the law profession and how there are simple techniques to employ to battle that stigma. Thank you for listening. You are tuning in to the Campbell Law Reporter. I am Shannon Lackey. I'll be your host for this episode. And today I am joined by Sean Doyle, who is a general counsel at MCNC here in the Triangle. Thank you, Sean, for joining us. Thank you. If you'd like to take some time to introduce yourself and a little info about where you work and let our listeners know how you became involved in your field, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. So I'm Sean Doyle. I'm general counsel at MCNC. It's a technology company, a a broadband and cybersecurity provider. We serve nonprofits and state government and local government, provide connectivity to all the schools in the state, K through 12, the universities, rural hospitals. So that's what the mission is, is to help provide connectivity throughout the state, economically distressed areas, rural areas especially. Came to that. I did a lot of different things in the law before that. I was an army prosecutor for a while. I worked for the speaker of a state legislature. I was in a big firm. I did data analytics on the legal side for years. So various different things in the law. And then the other piece of it is after practicing for about 15 years, I went back to grad school in psychology and specifically looked at lawyers and depression and why our numbers are so out of whack with the general population and what we can do differently and what as individuals and as organizations to help promote more flourishing in the practice of law. Well, I definitely see it's being talked about more so. And in my experience here as being admitted to Campbell, it's one of the things they warn you about is that coming into this field has some stigma around it and depression can be easily reached, unfortunately, with all the pressure that the job tends to have. You have an expansive background and a lot of different experiences. What would you say was your favorite of those career paths? Oh, I like very much where I am now. It is, I mean, in all the different legal jobs I've had, there's certainly been pluses and minuses. I like being in house Mm -hmm. uh, more. I was in private practice for a while. I like one of the advantages to being in-house is you typically get to see the entire life of the projects that you're working on. I, I know before we even begin the contracting process, I know what we're thinking about and the strategic direction we want to go. 
You see that through the life of the agreement. If things fall apart, you know the background. Right. <laughs> so that's been great. And then especially where I am now, it's a good organization. I like the mission of the organization. The people there have a lot of integrity and are really committed to doing the right thing. So it, it's been a, a very rewarding place to be. And with every great job, there tends to be some things that are a little on the negative side. So to keep it a little realistic, what are some of the challenges you think you face the most in your position? Maybe if it's related to seeing that project from start to finish, do you really attach yourself to that job inside and out and, and find yourself getting a little personal with the results? Or do you think it's, it's arm's length? It's a casual relationship despite it being serious in nature. It's something that you can feel strongly about in that there's more good than bad. And it's not something that you think is super stressful. Well, the most of the stress ends up coming from just too much to do that, you know, there's always more we can be doing, especially as lawyers, when we're looking for what can go wrong and you're trying to, to help plan the strategic direction and things along those lines, there's always things that we can be, be doing to help the organization or to better our own careers or whatever else and placing certain limits around those and, and letting yourself recognize when what you've done sufficient, you don't need to do other things. So that's a, that creates some stress and some challenge. But of course, that's something we all have control over. Right. Another thing about in-house in general, and I haven't experienced it as much where I am now, is that when I was in private practice and billing my time in six minute increments, mm -hmm. the client respected your time. When you're in house, a lot of times the client will, they'll want you involved with everything and they'll pull you in on all sorts of things, which is not always the most productive use of anyone's time. And again, that just is about setting expectations with your client and just having an open dialogue with folks. So it's, you know, there's some stresses or right. things, but they're certainly manageable and things that you can have some control over. And I probably, I'm under the impression that every job, especially in law, I mean, not to make any joke about the scales of justice, but balancing is a huge part of it. And in private practice, that balancing is a little bit easier because you're able to segment into those time slots and really attribute your level of involvement to what's necessary to the case. And you mentioned that people don't necessarily understand that in-house because it's one big picture as opposed to segmented blocks. So for those that are considering in-house counsel, you're encouraging those to express to their clients, this is something that I've noticed in the past and I don't expect it to be a large issue, but this needs to be a working relationship where things are prioritized in the matter they need to be for the best result of your case and importance needs to be communicated from back and forth as to far of where the time and energy is going to go into as opposed to well i know i want to please you as a customer and this is something i want to see all the way through but i can't approach it into everything it's the same amount of time with your background in psychology and you mentioned that you took that into undergrad and you we spoke prior to this, and you have been teaching at NC State, correct, for more than 10 years? That's right, for close to 10 years, close that's to right. 10 years. What do you think are the leading causes to depression in lawyers today? And in my research, I'm no expert on this topic, but the ABA says that in addition to other studies, lawyers are 3.6 times more likely than other professionals to become depressed due to work-related reasons. 
what do you think are those causes? It's a web of different things. I, I think altogether, you know, as lawyers, one of an essential role that we play is identifying the risk, identifying the challenges. And so we have to think through problems. So when you're working on an agreement, you know, your client's all excited. They're wanting to you know, strike this deal. They think it's going to really um, provide a lot of benefit to the organization. And then the lawyer comes in and starts saying, well, what if the product fails? Or what if they can't pay you? Or what if, you know, and you're going through all these different things. And they're important. Mm-hmm. They're, if we just blindly turn our, our head away and, and don't look for those things, most deals probably make out okay but there's some that don't and the ones that don't can cause you know, big problems for the organization. So it's an essential function that we play throw on top of, so all day long we're looking for what can go wrong, Right. throw in on top of that long hours and it can also often be contentious mm-hmm. and it just gets hard to turn it off. And then people go home and they treat their spouse and treat their children with the same level. And so that starts to degrade those. Another trap that I think that lawyers fall into is most of us had other interests before we went to law school, and there's always more we can be doing. And you know, we were taught that if you work hard enough, you can have whatever it is that you want. And so we work harder mm-hmm. and harder and harder, and we squeeze out everything else. And this could be you could love what you're doing. You could right. love the practice of law, but we end up squeezing out every other aspect of our lives that provides any sort of joy and meaning so that we can't, you know, relax when we do take vacation or whatever else. So it's important to be able to, to tap into those other interests and stay engaged. Then we come back to our practice much fresher and and can give more to it. So it's a balancing act, obviously. What techniques do you think lawyers should employ to remember or even remind themselves throughout and their job because there's a need to be candid between where you work, whether it is a private practice or in house counsel or general counsel that says to your boss or to your partner, this is important to me as well. And in order to be the best lawyer here, I need to be able to dedicate time to this. How would you suggest bringing that conversation to your employer or your place of business? Not to say that you're not dedicated to the projects and the work that you have to do, but to, to be able to say, this is what makes me the best me, and I need to spend some time for this. One thing that that I find usually helps with that conversation is if you're empowering the client. If you've got multiple internal clients, then that's it's a little bit more of a challenge because you could go to them and identify the, the big things you're working on, and your one client will say, well, I don't care. Those ones aren't mine. Right. <laughs> but, but often what we can do is by letting the client help prioritize. So, you know, here's the things that that we're working on. I'm glad to get to yours, but we've got these other competing things as well. And in that conversation, also empowering them so that, you know, maybe the lawyer does not have to be involved with every aspect of everything and start to give them some things that they're responsible for and take some ownership in what happens. Another essential thing, whether you're in-house or, or outside counsel, is communicating with your client, letting them know where things are. You know, a lot of times they will pick up the phone and want to keep 
calling you and you you feel like saying, well, I was working on it until I picked up the phone right. to answer the call. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wouldn't phrase it that way. But keeping them in the loop and just set, letting them know, hey, I wasn't able to get to it yet. Here's where it is on my plate. I've already talked to the other side. Whatever it is, keeping people updated. That's kind of the just the day-to-day managing piece. But again, I mean, this can be all-consuming. And so a couple of things that individual lawyers can do to help with their own well-being and help keep the tank filled is what we find in the research around well-being and and happiness is some of the biggest contributors to our well-being are our relationships. And often you People go to law school and they spend all their time in the library. <laughs> and tell us to kind of prioritize school and, and explain to them that this comes first and limit your vacations and your time spent with family. And, and that tends to be kind of a consensus amongst my peers that are, they're frustrated with that concept because they know that that's what makes them happy as well. And while at least for law school, and I know for your career, if you continue that behavior, it's going to be kind of damaging because those are as important but in the short term, you want to be able to do well and excel. And, and so, yeah, I, I definitely see myself and my peers dedicating that time solely to the studies. And there's some relationships that fall apart for those that don't understand. And so I think what you said about communication can easily translate into your families and your spouses and your friends and saying, well, this is what's prioritizing right now, but we need to schedule some time that we, we stick to to kind of alleviate that confusion and allow us to develop and, 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 and maintain our relationships elsewhere. Yeah, the relationships are essential. And it's in addition to you know, being good for us in terms of, of moral support and, and just the, the positive things that come from relations – other people are also resources for us so that if we are struggling to keep up with stuff or if we're having certain challenges, it's our friends and family that can kind of lend a hand and help things out. Too often we feel like we have to go it alone. One of the things that I've done is a, a part of my area of psychology, positive psychology, is resilience. Looking at who are the people who, when they're faced with some big challenge, are best able to you know, function at a high level under that challenge. They're able to bounce back. They're able to withstand it without some of the negative things that can come from the stress. And we've done work in that area with soldiers and um, with all sorts of other groups as well. And a key aspect of resilience is relationships. All, all, often we have this image in our mind of John Wayne who's out there mm-hmm. doing it by themselves and it's real neat and it happens quickly. And and that's not the way resilience is, that it's you're tapping into the various resources you have and it's the other people that can really help sustain us and keep us going. And even with limited time, I mean, we do have to devote time to study or mm-hmm. when, when we're in our practices to our jobs. There's things that you can do in the relationships with other people to kind of accelerate those relationships. So we don't necessarily have endless hours just to hang out. Right. But there's things that we can do to deepen the connections in the limited amount of time. So relationships are huge. Exercise is huge. Um, I mean, that's great for your physical health, but it does so much for our brain health and for our psychological state as well. My doctor tells me that I should exercise every day I eat 
Oh. You know, so it's, you know, so it's. Well, there's no, there's no denying the endorphins post exercise too into bringing in a little bit more of that happiness. Would you say that a large challenge for lawyers, especially in the practice, because of the work that they do is so confidential that they feel isolated? Would you suggest that there's techniques to avoid that without violating anything ethical, without feeling too much pressure as far as to keep it all under wraps because it's not always another job or it can be for other professions that you're able to go and vent to your spouse or to your family. Like this is what I faced at work. It sucked. It was hard and it's healthy for them to kind of express those feelings. Whereas lawyers, because of the confidential job that you have, you're not always able to give those details and that weighs heavily in on your brain and on your shoulders. What would you suggest to kind of combat that without obviously violating anything? ethically? Yeah. I mean, certainly there are some, things that we can express about frustrations with work or school that don't tap into the individual confidential stuff, more of the relational issues and some of the stresses that come up, but without necessarily having to identify a client or, or any of the specifics, the stigma about going to a counselor has been drastically reduced that there Mm -hmm. used to be a much bigger stigma against it. You know, that's a great resource. You can go and you can talk with a counselor as well. You know, often if you're in an office with with other lawyers, you share the same clients, whatever else, that's always a great source. But, you know, so I'd look for various different places that ways that you're able to reach out and make those connections. And would you say building your team at work is as important as building your team at home as far as a support group? Because I know there's some formalities that prevent it from being super casual, obviously. But that kind of communication or community within either a private practice or in-house is a vital part to making the machine or the whole thing work and go smoothly. Yeah, it's definitely different. You know, a lot of times we end up spending more time with our coworkers than we do with our families. And there have been people I worked with in the past that I wouldn't want to go out and hang out with them after work. I mean, they just, we weren't, I didn't dislike them, but there were just, there's not, yeah, there's connection. That's right. It's just not the same type of relationship, but we figured out great ways to work together. Right. And so, you know, I, mean, I take a very pragmatic, practical approach to it that it's, you know, we're trying to achieve something and we're each bringing different strengths and blind spots to the table and we're able to kind of complement one another to help advance things. In law school, we're kind of told it's a great big competition and that you're competing here from the get-go against your peers you to get that rank or to get the job. But I don't know that that's necessarily the real world experience and would you say at least in your experiences has it been as competitive or that that competition is actually healthier there than it is probably in law school so when they look at i'll back into the question so when they look at law students and depression Mm -hmm. and they look at lawyers and depression Mm -hmm. these are old studies and they haven't been replicated so that the data is still valid data but it's it's not necessarily looking at the most current so they looked at Students entering law school compared to students entering medical school, Mm -hmm. another professional, stressful, rigorous academic program, and both entered in about the same. So it wasn't that the lawyers were attracting cynical, depressed people. We were we're about the same as everybody else. Right, right. And (laughs) (laughs) And after about three after three years, 
the levels of hostility, depression, all the bad stuff Mm -hmm. were much higher for the law students Mm -hmm. than they were for both the general population and for the medical students. It was elevated in both populations. Right. Once the medical students were out, once they were graduated, became doctors, theirs levels of stress and depression and hostility dropped for lawyers it dropped too right but but it never got back to baseline so it was still much higher than the general population do you think that might be because the nature of the job at least in that comparison between uh, medical students or medical professionals and lawyers is that medicine is to help people And while lawyers are to help people as well, there's a little bit more adversarial notions to that job because even in in any conflict, while it's not necessarily a personal vendetta, although some clients sometimes do take that that route, you're out to win essentially. And that that pressure kind of weighs heavily on those professionals and that other people that might have been experiencing similar frustrations in law school now are on the other side and you're trying to, while maintaining professionalism, I'm not saying get angry at them, but more so they're now someone I have to monitor their tactics and kind of see where this comes out and hopefully um, I do better than, than we are in the current situation. I don't know why with the doctors, mm-hmm. but with the lawyers, it is in part that by looking for what can go wrong all day long, right. every day, long hours, you can get skeptical of people's motives and right. you can think the other side is trying to take advantage of me. And sometimes they are. Right. And so <laughs> it's not unfounded all the time. Right. So sometimes you find some evidence for that belief, but then it makes it really easy to paint every interaction that way. Gotcha. And what I have found is that most lawyers are. You know, they care about their clients' interests, but they're really relatively easy to work with and that that people really can be hard on the issues, mm-hmm. but then soft on the other person. Right. You don't have to be a jerk just right. because you're fighting for a, for whatever your client's interest is. Right. I mean, what I've done the majority of my career is negotiate agreements. Right. Sometimes with most often with folks who want to reach an agreement, but I've, I've had some where there was a legal obligation that the parties agree and they really had no interest in agreeing. And those ones are more, those are more interesting, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, if I can understand the other party's interest, what it is that, that they're looking to achieve, then how they marked up an agreement or something they say or whatever else, then I've got a context for it and say, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, they're not trying to take advantage of me. This is what, what they're trying to reach. And most often I will try to help them get what they want while of course also looking out for my clients' interests. And most often we can do it, but you know, parties will come in and they'll have vastly different interests, but they can usually be supportive of one another. So taking in all the um, options for risk, you shouldn't still give people because they're people the benefit of the doubt as far as mistakes go, unless it's a clear cut red flag things are going wrong there there's people out here out to get each other and in that case you can take a little bit more precaution but would you say that to give those people that benefit of the doubt is a healthier thing even for your own well-being because then you're not not taking it personally in that this person's kind of out to get my client and i'm supposed to be representing them with zeal and i don't want to fight that issue too heavily and and it allows it to go a little bit more smoothly well i think you should be open I mean, it really comes down to, I mean, right now, mindfulness is really trendy. And I think there's, 
I've got lots of thoughts on on what mindfulness is, mm-hmm. and and really part of it is just being aware of what's in front of you, and that's I mean I find that that's an effective way to go into the discussions. I'm not trusting them from the standpoint that it makes you vulnerable, but mm-hmm. I'm also at least I'm trying not to right. paint them as the bad guy who's trying to take advantage of everything. I'm just kind of being open and listening. And when they raise something or when they react, that's all. It's always interesting when someone has a big emotional reaction. Uh-huh. It's like, huh, I wonder what I touched or how they're interpreting something or what's it's, what's it's motivating all, that yeah. So that, you know, I've been in negotiations where the parties all start yelling at each other and mm-hmm. I feel like this is great. Now we've, <laughs> now we've tapped into the important stuff. Right. And then you start digging and seeing, okay, well, what's, where's that coming from? Usually, I find you can meet both people's sides. Right, I think what it's, it's for. easier when that air is cleared to kind of know where people are coming from, despite it seeming kind of tense at the moment. It, with that being transparent as to far as what I'd like to accomplish in this, however they deliver that information, is valuable information. And, and it's a little easier to get to the end-all goal. And it's easier to have kind of that that openness or that mindfulness if we can keep ourselves centered. Right. So again, it's the relationships outside of work. It's the exercise. It's finding what it is that fills us personally. I mean, maybe again, most of us had interest before law school. I mean, what are those things that when you do them, time stops for you and you just mm-hmm. feel the most alive and who you are? Make time for some of that stuff. It's not sometimes the light work life balance stuff gets kind of woo woo and, mm-hmm. and, and is thought of as a soft thing. It's not. What it's doing is it's empowering us to be able to do our jobs better and be more effective. I mean, it, it's the key or it's one of the big keys to resiliency. Well, that's great. And so, congratulations on the release of your book. It's called Mud and Dreams, correct? That's right. And could you tell our listeners more about it and where they could get their hands on a copy or how to get in contact with you sure. to discuss it? Sure. Yeah. So, the book is Mud and Dreams. It's essays about falling more deeply in love with life. And what they are is my, again, my area of psychology is positive psychology. So, that's looks at it's the scientific study of the things that matter in life. So it looks at when we're our happiest, when we have a sense of meaning, when groups are flourishing, when people go through really difficult things, who are the ones that flourish, who mm-hmm. actually come out stronger as a result of the, the trauma. So positive psychology looks at those things to see what we can take away from them. And what the book is, is it's a series of poetic essays that look at the challenges we all face as adults, loved ones becoming ill, challenges in the mm-hmm. workplace, and how do we take this research and happiness and make it personal and make it real? And they're all really short essays. Mm-hmm. I, I was a poet before anything else, so they've got a strong... Jekyll uh, traits here. <laughs> yeah, there's a strong... The literary aspect of, of the book is was important to me. But you, you can pick them up, you can read the essays in any order, or if you read it cover to cover, there's a thread that runs through it. Gotcha. <laughs> but it's, you know, you can ask for it in any bookstore, and uh, they any bookstore can order it. If they don't have it on the shelf already, here in Raleigh, Quail Ridge Books okay. has it, page 158 books in Wake Forest does, Cocoon Gallery down in Apex. 
Of course, it's available on Amazon as well. The most accessible. Uh, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> for everyone you know, that's, that's not in North Carolina. No, that's right. That's that's an easy easy place to get it. And to find out more about the book or to get in touch with me, I've got a, a website. It's John Sean S E A N Doyle dot com. Great. So, um, you said that you're a poet before anything else. Would you say that's what kind of ex- inspired you to take the journey of writing this book? And were there any moments in its creation that you just felt were particularly inspiring? And so I was always doing other writing. and But what inspired this book in particular was the levels of hostility and depression and despair that's out there in the culture in general, certainly some related to the practice of law, but really much bigger than that too. And I've got three kids, so I'd look at kind of what was going on in the schools and you look online at how people treat each other and in the right. news and it's just, <laughs> yeah, you, you can't escape it. And so, you know, I would look at this and, and fundamentally my, my thought around things is, yes, there's absolutely things that need to be addressed. You know, there's a lot of injustice, there's environmental concerns. There are absolutely things that we we should be focusing on. But that doesn't mean that that we have to have this sense of despair. Mm-hmm. And there are things that we can do to help bridge differences and inject more humanity into our relationships that help to address some of those. Well, I think in particular with online communications and kind of the hostility there, that's forgotten is that you're talking to another person. It's really easy to depersonalize the the one that you're having a conflicted discussion with because you're not looking at their face, you're not watching their expressions, or you're not even, it's not even as personal as a phone call even would be because you can hear in the inflections of voice and stuff like that. I definitely see particularly in in my experience and like throughout my generational introduction to technology and stuff like that, we we may have started a a little bit more aware of who we were talking to on the other side because it was something new and and, and everyone was like, well, I'm still communicating with a person. But nowadays that's almost instantly forgotten. And it's if you disagree with what it doesn't have to be political, it could be environmental, like you said, it if you disagree, it's suddenly a personal attack. And I don't think that's always conveyed that that's not what they're feeling. It's more so meant to be a, a meeting of the minds of discussion on how the world can kind of be made better. But with those that kind of personally identify with views that conflict with others, it's hard to get past that. And that that's me that, that they disagree with me. And, and because of that, I dislike them. And I think that, that happens a lot less in person. But online in particular, I know that's definitely something that's kind of prevalent. And again, not an expert on the topic. I'm not talking about research. I just know this from seeing peers and friendships kind of disappear over an online discussion. Right. And that we have a tendency to, if someone disagrees with us politically or they take a stance a particular way or they vote for who we think is the wrong candidate or whatever else, we there's a tendency to all of a sudden write them off as either ignorant or evil or un-American or whatever the, and, you know, I've got friends with drastically different political views than I have Mm -hmm. who in every other domain of life, they're they're reasonable, (laughs) kind, I'd trust my children with them. Mm -hmm. And you look at this and you recognize, okay, well, you know, we disagree on these, these things, but reasonable people really can reach other conclusions about things. Right. And so how do we work with that? I mean, we've 
that's happened in every culture through the history of time is mm-hmm. people didn't always agree about everything mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't always solve it by you know fighting with one another that, right. that you find ways to I mean, those that made it didn't. <laughs> that, no, that's exactly right they found ways to have non-zero-sum relationships and actually say okay well where's the places that we can build or where's mm-hmm. the things that we can work on together and you know it's not always smooth and easy right but Really, and this there's a lot of this in, in the book and a lot of stuff that I point to, some of the research and some of the historical evidence, that more often than not, by injecting more humanity into the relationships, we're going to have a better outcomes right. and, and it, it helps our well-being as well. I mean, it's as much of an internal battle as it, as it is a conflict with somebody else and you kind of want to be in the sound state that maybe it brings them closer and that you're saying, hey, I don't view you for this label because you feel this way. And that might soften the kind of the, the hard, harsh exteriors that people are placing on themselves because they, they so like determinedly want to defend how they feel. So I think that's definitely good advice because... I mean, otherwise, we're, we're going to go to the unfriending and blocking people off forever. And, and there goes the humanity in that in that respect. And as lawyers, I think there's we're both at a heightened risk, but there's also a heightened opportunity Right. that because we are seeing people when they're disagreeing mm-hmm. and sometimes they're disagreeing about stuff that is that feels like an existential threat to them, you know, that it's threatening their livelihood or their custody of their children or some, some really difficult things. So the, the threat to us is that because we're soaked in it, it's so easy to get pulled in and cynical and, and worn out and beaten down. But the other part is, I mean, I've one time I calculated that I've, I'd negotiated and resolved over 10,000 disputes oh, in, wow. in my legal career. And, you know, some, a lot of them were little easy things, but there are a lot that were not a lot, a lot of times the parties really felt like they had fundamental differences and were yelling at each other. And in the end, they, they didn't compromise. They found ways to meet the needs, their own needs while meeting the needs of the other. That stuff really does happen. And I think that we forget that a lot of times. Well, it's not what always is made so popular, too. And, and especially with any type of research into it, you're not exposed to the ones that go well. You're not always exposed right. to the settlement agreements. You're not always exposed to where people came together and found, I mean, in family law, found a schedule that worked even better. And people are better friends for it and everything like that. But because I think the society today puts such a spotlight on things that go wrong for whatever reason. It's exciting or it's controversial or it's current that you forget. I mean, people can come together. It's not yeah. the end of the world. I mean, we're doing all right. It's just that communication and being open to that communication is kind of what's so important. And it's it doesn't mean it's easy. No. And, it, and it doesn't mean that it's going to happen the first try. There'll be lots of false starts and everything else. But if you are hopeful and continue to look for ways to make it work, you usually can find ways. So I think lawyers actually have a very special opportunity and have a very powerful way in which we affect the overall culture. Mm-hmm. And so that's a so even when you look at this data about lawyers being at a higher risk of alcoholism and depression and suicide and just this parade of horribles, 
that is not the entire profession. Right. It's not the majority <laughs> of the profession. It right. really, it's, our numbers are higher than the general population, but still most lawyers are doing okay. Mm-hmm. And there are some who are flourishing, who mm-hmm. absolutely love what they're doing. They wouldn't do anything different. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity there for all of us. And that's all you need to hear, though, too, is that you don't have, this isn't one, this isn't the rule. So you don't even have to be an exception to the rule. But as far as managing your own happiness, you're able to kind of push through any of those boundaries that seem to be so depressing or pessimistic because, well, you know, I've got me and I'm balancing me and you're going to find bumps on the road there. But as far as, as long as you keep to that path of that's what's important and employ that in any of the aspects of your life that you're currently pursuing, you're able to do a little bit better and and find that that might come easier. I mean, there's still challenges, but you're not facing a bump in the road and then allowing that bump to kind of destroy the rest of your your path and and say like well it's not meant for me then i'm I'm shutting down right that's great and i think it's important too to bring back some happiness and and i I encourage those listening please go check out the book modern dreams and read some of these poems and especially if it's something that you think might brighten your day and brighten your outlook and in, in this profession you need a little bit of reading that can benefit you both mental health and and, and kind of the balance of your overall life that's something you should look into we do ask all of our guests that come on to the Campbell Law Reporter to answer our question what does leading with purpose mean to you it's in furtherance of the university's mission statement and I think it's a it's a great way to kind of connect everyone that's kind of coming on from different backgrounds into seeing what that means and that's a positive outlook and important thing to drive yourself forward Yeah. So, and I I do a lot of work around leadership. I mean, I do a lot of coaching and consulting for law firms and for groups around leadership. And there's lots of people in this space and researchers and consultants and everything else that sometimes come up with pretty elaborate theories. Ultimately, I think leadership comes down to caring about the community, whether that's your work community or your local community or your family or the the people around you. So caring about the community and taking steps to make that community better or to make it healthier or to function well, you know, and and sometimes it's going to look differently at different times, usually in, you know, getting the buy-in of other people, Mm -hmm. you know, involved in that community about how to make things work. But it comes down to the caring Mm -hmm. and, and, and really being, you know, commit it to whatever this, this group is that you're involved with and just helping make, make things a little bit easier and a little bit better. All of us have enough stuff in life that's difficult or hard or we don't want to deal with or tedious, mm-hmm. you know, to the extent that we can make people's lives a little bit more meaningful and inject a little more joy and make things a little bit easier. It makes it better for all of us. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, I mean, with that, I can definitely say, what I took away from this is take care. I mean, take care of you and take care of those around you and it'll benefit you in, in ways that you can't necessarily foresee because what's it, that extension of yourself goes beyond your own prediction and you're able to kind of benefit and make, make those, those negative things not be something that you're contributing to. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for joining us. We're excited to release this episode. I think it's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing to, to avoid feeling so dark and dismal with a, a job that obviously has its pressures. And, and again, we're not we're not the most all special and we're not the only ones facing this. So if you find that this is in your career, 
and that you're still facing the struggles and, and you and you're, and you're dealing with pressure from everywhere around you this still could benefit you you don't have to be a lawyer to take some of this advice and kind of benefit yourself and and the mud and dreams book isn't solely for lawyers it's everyone no that's right yeah no it's um i'm trying to think if there's anything lawyer specific in right, it there may right, be no. but it's no it's definitely about all of us i mean it's about the struggles we all go through and and that there's opportunities for hope and joy and meaning even with the challenges that we all have to face well thank you so much again sean and take care thank you i very much enjoyed it thanks thank you so much for listening today if you enjoyed this episode please go and rate us five stars on the apple podcast app and look for more episodes on any of our other platforms Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.